Welcome to the Paramedia Podcast with Luca Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Paramedia Podcast. Uh, my name is Luca Dharagavi, and today I am joined by Brahmachari Rajavihari Sharan. It's a long name, but it's very uh, apt because he comes from a long tradition um, of, of great spiritual. Uh, masters, I mean, not that term, but gurus, acharyas, um, and seekers. Um, he comes from the Nimbarka uh, Sampradaya, which is a, a very, it's one of the uh, six darshanas in the, or not darshanas, six uh, philosophies in the Vedantic tradition um, that are major ones. Um, so we'll actually let him talk about it more than me, because I'm not an expert at, it, at that. Um, so, uh, a Brahmachari or Vajravihari uh, or what do you prefer to be called? In, uh, you know, <laughs> welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Mukunda. Uh, thank you for, uh, you know, dealing with the name. I think that when my Guruji was uh, giving me this name, he wanted to make sure that I would have to explain how to say it every time. Um, yeah. as, a te- as a, you know, as a good way of helping me to understand humility more. Um, sure. I think it works. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I have a long name too. My full name is Mukunda Madhava Seshishai Vijay Raghavan. Right? Wow, so, <laughs> lovely. Lovely. Long name. All Vishnu Bhagavan, names. Rama and Krishna all in one, right? <laughs> yeah. All Vishnu names, right? You know, the, yeah. When you belong yeah. to that uh, uh, Sri Vaishnavite Sampradaya, you get all. I see. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Uh, no, my students call me Dr. Sharan. My uh, colleagues call me Brahmachari or Brahmachariji. Whatever is good with you works. Right. Let you find. Okay, uh, Brahmachari G is fine if that's uh, if that works. I mean, sure. um, yeah. So why don't you tell us a little about yourself? What's your background? How do you? I mean, this is to become a Brahmachari in the twenty twenty first century. Mm. That's got to take a lot of uh, gumption, right? It's a. Uh, it does. It's, it's unique. It does, and I'm actually glad that. Um, the way that we philosophize the uh, reasoning behind uh, the Brahmacharya Vrata is a little bit different than the Dharma Shastras outline it. Okay. Um, and I think that's a good way of jumping into the discussion of what Nimbak Sampradaya is and why we are as the way we are. Yeah. Uh, we're not very known, even amongst uh, Hindus, when, you go, uh, when I go across um, India or in the diaspora. Yeah. And I don't mention Nimbak Bhagwan because our philosophy at the first and foremost, the basic, most basic level is to help human beings become and retain their status as human beings. Right. Um, and so the Nimbak's uh, discussion is one you'd have, you know, way down the line mm-hmm. um, after someone has gotten past, you know, basics of karma theory, basics of dharma theory, uh, and all of that kind of thing. So what do you, I mean, I, I, I want to get into your backstory also, but mm-hmm. I just want to have flush out this idea. What do you mean human beings are human? I mean, that's a... Yes. Well, you have all of these subhashitas, you know, the, the ones that are famous, like Ahara Nidra, Bhame, Tunancha, those um, uh, that uh, eating, sleeping, uh, protecting what we have and procreation yeah. are all common between humans and, and all animals. animals. Yeah. Right? What makes us different than an animal? Well, it's our sense of either, depends on who you're reading, either dharma or jnana, whichever one. Right. Um, and the problem that we've come across as being that people are more likely to give up on universal morals if they feel that they have a justification for it. Okay. Um, especially if that justification is given a divine kind of stamp. Um, and our major concern is to help people realize that 
divine stamps are subjective. We need to focus on objective universal morals first. That's, if you've got that sorted, then you can deal with the divine. Otherwise, that's, no. that's very interesting. I want to get into that. Um, but, okay. but let's, uh, let's get your background first, because that's, I mean, your journeys, I, I mean, to, 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 to make the decision to be a Brahmacharya must there must have been something interesting that led you down that path. <laughs> so how did you get to there and, and how did you find that path? It was actually despair. Um, okay. So I was born in London. I was yep. born in London and uh, the community that I belong to are from the West Indies. Yep. And uh, I had very solid interest in, in our dharma for a while because, you know, um, our, my parents raised us as best as they could. They were not rich by any means um, right. and they struggled quite hard in the UK. Um, and the one or two questions I had at that time, obviously they were ill-equipped to answer them. And okay. another problem was that there were very few people around us that were equipped to answer them. Yeah. Um, and the pundits, when we interfaced with them, would always give me a story. And the stories are great. They're good for certain people, but I don't know why my mind is a little bit more focused on facts and uh -huh. <laughs> things like that. Um, the answers obviously fell, fell short no, through no fault of their own. Um, and so I became very, very, very atheist. Um, and I would retain notions of what, what atheism taught me. And how um, old were you when you were atheist? Oh, through my teenage years, through high school. Um, but it's, it's um, interesting. Many people go through it around that time, right? <laughs> it is. It is. The thing that, that I think was helpful for me was that I never lost the love of Sanskrit. And if that yeah. meant that I would go to, um, religious arenas in order to get more and more in, uh, information about Sanskrit, I would. Okay. So um, it was more a confluence of interest in quantum physics and f the finding out that there was more to Vedanta than uh, Advaita Vedanta mm -hmm. that made me start to give more time to Vedanta again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And then, uh, I mean, that's intellectual pursuit. How'd you decide that you're right. going to do this, uh, Massive life, lifestyle and right. uh, shift of your mentality pursuit. When I got more and more involved with the Nimbak Sampradaya, I realized that we were dying. Um, our last great Jagat Guru passed away in 2016. Uh -huh. um, and when I was with him the last few times, he made mention on numerous occasions that of your generation, you're the only one that, number one, has all the manuscripts. And number two has the interest in researching them. Yeah. Um, it's kind of sad to hear that after a tradition that has had the, the length of time that it has on this planet. Right. Um, and the toss up is always between, well, are you going to research and teach or are you going to try and have a family whilst researching and teaching? Yeah. Uh, the amount of material I have could easily last somebody two or three lifetimes worth to translate sure, sure. and do justice to. And I would never want to visit the kind of, I would call it hinsa violence. Um, that you do on a family that you, number one, set up, and then number two, don't give enough time to afterwards. Right, right. So um, it's a difficult decision, but I'm glad, again, that the decision is not based on Western ideals of celibacy, but Eastern notions on celibacy, which is you are giving yourself fully to the task that you've selected, and you know what you're getting into. Right. Um, so as a human being, you try to live up to those ideals rather than um, have some divine puppet master following you right. around all the time. Right. I mean, it, there's a couple threads here that I, I kind of want to pull at. Um, one is first, uh, you know, sorry for these questions, but I, I no, love no, to learn go for people's it. background. Um, and I think a lot of our viewers do too. Um, 
you're from Guyana, oh, or not Guyana, sorry, West Indies. Where, where in uh, West Indies is your family from? Sorry, I just, I just assumed uh, that. Was that guess. was my fault. It was, it was a very good guess, very good guess. Um, so I can trace my family back to Varanasi. Okay. But um, uh, before, before I was born, my parents moved here from Guyana. Okay. So how long were, was your family in, like, in the West Indies? And do you know how they got there? Yeah, I know how they got there. They went as part of the indentureship system, and indentureship is taught of in very different ways. Another piece of the puzzle that people don't recognize is that um, there were there were different types of people brought across for different reasons. Right. Um, my family came across in all of those realms. Right. right. From working in this, uh, working in the fields, all the way through to uh, translating and interpreting for the. Uh, for the British rulers. So from in amongst there, it was actually the people who were working the fields that, it's a weird story. My great-great-grandfather right. used to keep Shalagramaji as, uh, as the, uh, the seva that they used to do at their home. Yeah. Um, and he worked for his five years. He actually got on the boat back to Kolkata. He got off at Kolkata. Um, in Kolkata, it was nighttime and he would not get any connections to go back to uh, Varanasi. Huh. So he was looking for a place to stay. Some sadhu turned up and said, oh, I have a dharmshala. So he went with the sadhu. He did his seva and put his belongings and everything else under his head. Yeah. Uh, was going to have a sleep. And he says, oh, no, don't sleep on an empty stomach. So they go and eat. When he comes back, he, wake, uh, he goes to sleep and he wakes up three days later. Everything but the shaligramji is gone. Wow. Wow. Uh, so he called for his uh, family from uh, Varanasi, said, whoever's coming, come, you bring whatever we have, and we're yeah. going back, and we're going to live there. Um, and so that's what he did. So our family settled um, over there, and uh, with what they had from Varanasi, they were able to get a very small piece of land off the British, and they expanded okay. that and gave homes to all the people that were, uh, were suffering down there. And so even that village is still called uh, Narish village uh, in Guyana. Uh, just because the family tried to help as many people as they could before a dictatorship started in the 60s. Wow. So how long has your family been in the West Indies, in Guyana? Um, the sh documents I've read, um, my mother's side would have gotten there in the 1870s, and my okay. father's side got there in 1893. Okay. And, the, and during that time, they still did the indenture servitude? Oh, yeah. The indentureship was only abolished in the 1920s. Wow. And in some places, it went further than that. Now, do, do you guys have a family history about like kind of stories that kind of connected oh, yeah. to that? I mean, it, it, especially like when we're talking now in, in this this day and age where there's a lot of discussion as to nature of slavery, that's of servitude, and, and how mm -hmm. different ethnic groups' experiences with the colonial powers and the colonial experience itself. And, mm -hmm. and, and in some sense, yeah, we can say uh, the white man's uh, uh, imposition of their their world and their world vision upon most of the world. Um, right. I think it's very important to capture, you know, what happened to people like your grandparents and, you know, people that came from Africa and, and, and the sense of, of, I mean, not comparing at all, but just how different and how unique these experiences of, of suffering were provided just to extract some sort of labor or, or control over another human being. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm not an expert, I, tell, uh, I tend to tell people, you know, consider one thing. Yeah. You're a slave owner one day, and your slaves have been emancipated. The people yeah. you've enslaved have, have been emancipated against your wishes 
by the government. Yeah. And then they provide you another set of people who you still consider heathen and uncivilized yeah. to work on the same property, doing the same jobs in the same places, in the same conditions. Do you think that their attitudes would have changed dramatically between the time that they had uh, enslaved people and the time that they had indentured people? Of course not. That's my question. Obviously, trying to trace that up through a, uh, through a period of history which is heavily undocumented yeah. is, is going to be very difficult. But when I've spoken to people's grandparents, that was one thing I liked to do, was to speak to people's grandparents, people who could remember living through, um, or at least having parents who lived through yeah. um, those times. You tend to get a very different picture about how people were living then. Um, right. And again, living in Loji is the same um, lodgings that um, the enslaved were forced to live in. I would say the one thing that I would definitely always say is different is the way that the enslaved uh, people were treated uh, after transportation. The kinds of physical punishments were um, were a lot more pronounced. Yeah. Um, but the human li uh, the liberties that is taken with a human being, I don't think that they ever changed. Right. So right. my my respect will always be with the enslaved and the descendants of the enslaved. Right. Um, and also with uh, those who were part of the indentured ship system. Sure. Uh, this notion that people went of their free accord, you've seen it in scholars' literature, I, uh, like people went because the British had engineered famines that That's were right. affecting the entire northern belt of the, of, of the countries or the territories at that point. So when people say, oh, they went of their, uh, their free accord, I'm like, hmm. Right, see. right. Let's try and look at that again with some human compassion and human realism and see what would have been going on at that point in time. Right, because I mean, we know, I mean, these are pretty well settled facts in the late 19th century and their 20th century, uh, throughout the course of places like Bengal and regions like that, they, mm -hmm. they engineered many, many famines. Uh, yeah, 1856 is a major yeah. Bengal famine. Right. Um, and Union Territory's fam uh, famine. Yeah. People know about that and it's no, no small coincidence that your big numbers of people start immigrating uh, through the, not even immigrating, being taken through the uh, indentureship system right. from 1865 onwards. Right, right. You get your it, next major famine in the 1870s. Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah, and, and it's interesting enough, I, I mean, from my reading of m much of Indian historiography, um, there weren't too many famines in the course of Indian history that compared to much of the rest of the world before that period of time, where in that, in that kind of spread, um, I mean, there were uh, there were ones ones here and there, but not not like four in the in the span of a you know a century. You know, that's mm. uh, that's a little unprecedented. Um, it is definitely unprecedented. Uh, but you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of uh, attention not given to these kind of instances. But uh, to to cut back to your uh, to your story, you know, another thing I always I tend to notice is um, between people from the West Indies and know, other Desis directly from India in some sense, there always seems to be a little bit of tension or different. I don't know if there's tension or a differentiation between the two. I mean, could you speak to that? Did you ever experience that? And, 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 and yeah, I mean. <laughs> that was a very, very interesting um, uh, dynamic to try and live through. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, the association of... Um, of the indentureship system with being following um, on the on the heels of um, the slave trade mm -hmm. uh, meant that even 
in uh, you know uh, indians who were remaining in india yeah. that they were perceiving the people taken across as if they were slaves too and so um i was uh, you know i learned hindi once i had gotten to india yeah um and it then dawned upon me that people were using words like niche and um you know few friends uh, from different traditions were using the words kafir and all of those uh, words quite regularly when they were talking about west indian people even in the uk wow um which was kind of interesting now for the benefit of those people who are in the uk um the indians who came over uh, straight from india or through africa to the uk those people tended to be a little bit more um sensible mm-hmm. because they had lived with um folk from the west indies and they had seen how everybody's working hard together and they see that these people who can't speak hindi any longer because the 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 british beat it out of them right. they still sing from the ramcharit manas they all know the hanuman chalisa they all sing the aarti it's uh, they all uh, forget religious stuff they all sing the same old bollywood nonsense from the in 1960s right, right. and 40s so um it's really the problem was when i went to india mm-hmm. um you know jati and caste still being such a big problem yeah. um it's very easy for folk to put you in a box yeah but thankfully the renunciate path is one that liberates you from those boxes right. and it also helps if you can speak sanskrit at them <laughs> <laughs> one of the few times sanskrit speaking or knowledge comes into play <laughs> oh yeah and to try to try and help people uh, realize their follies when it comes to boxing people Right right you know it's a uh, i mean i mean say that just i mean i think sanskrit comes into play in so many great amazing ways in our lives when you when you know the language but but nonetheless i mean i i find that it it's always it, it's it it's tough to you know we we do talk loftily about our tradition and our culture and these great mm-hmm. maxims in our in our you know in, in from india or whatever and then and then you see how indian people treat each other in some mm. ways and these you know I, and i'm not going to say varna distinctions i don't know if it's varna i don't know if it's jati i, I don't know if it's caste there are all mm. some mix of that you know there's you know like there's great authors nicholas dirks and a few other people write about the history of caste um so i'm not going to say this is like an ancient tradition but it is found in things places like mahabharata and various yeah. other texts where you still have these strains of of treating other human beings differently because they're born as particular community or particular group and yeah and it's sad yeah yeah go ahead no go ahead i said i'm just saying sad yeah i mean the mahabharata is is a great example of a text that is really listening to and composed by the people that are on the streets listening to it yeah so we know that there is obviously this core of the mahabharata but as it was performed by people across ancient india yeah um that uh, it was incorporating local stories local customs you get the whole notion of um uh dharma being questioned by the other dharmic people yeah is really really lifted up in the mahabharata yeah uh, there's a lovely discussion between jajali and tuladhara uh, um uh, rishi versus a businessman yeah yeah and yeah it's the it's the businessman that actually knows the truth not the rishi because he's still is so haughty and arrogant about him being from this pure brahmin class and this guy is just this old um uh, you know um ration seller in varanasi funnily enough <laughs> I mean there's so, great stories like that there's Sulabha yeah. and Janaka which is fantastic Janaka. and then there's you know even the Chandala and uh, Vishwamitra which is another yeah. great conversation right for a Pad Dharma and things of that nature but you know yeah. 
I mean, touching on this point, you know, that we're still on is you've, I mean, from the West Indies perspective, does, does cast Varna Jati, any of it still play in, in that, in that world or no, or, I mean, it, I, I, did you, I mean, moving across the entire yeah. continents and yeah. does that change how you view yourselves? Is it just like you go to larger community or do you still, still I mean, it's, it's, the dynamics have to be. Dynamics are very different. The dynamics are different. I feel at once, I feel at once West Indian and non-West Indian. I feel yeah. at once Indian and non-Indian. I feel at once um, English and non-English. I feel <laughs> at once American and non-American. But um, I think that the more and more I've gotten to live with Dharma, I yeah. would say that my identity, whatever you want to call the identity I have, I would say that my identity is Dharmic. Yeah. I don't think I have any other identity that I would, um, you know, want to defend. Yeah, yeah. Because of how much it has given me. Sure. That one identity is beyond nation, uh, beyond geography, beyond time, place and circumstance. That Absolutely. identity is eternal for me. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I would say that when, when a lot of the people that went over to um, the West Indies from India, they were coming from two places, either Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, that kind of area, or from uh, Tamil Nadu, yeah. from the Madras presidency at the point. Yeah. Um, and when you go to India, uh, sorry, when you go to the West Indies now, you look for people's surnames like Sharma, you look for surnames such as Varma or Singh or those kinds of names, you will yeah. find a few Singhs, you will yeah. find a few Mishirs and a few Shuklas and a few of those people. But nine times out of 10, those people's surnames are Ram Bharosa, Ram Bharose, Ram Naresh, Ram, yeah. uh, Ram Raja. I've heard so many permutations of names of Lord Ram yeah, yeah. as people's surnames. And I thought that it was because people simply took their parents' first name as their surname. Uh, whilst that did happen in certain cases, most people actively took Ramji's name as their surname to erase any differences that were, t uh, that were discernible through somebody's surname. Wow. Um, and that has a great deal to do with most people belonging to the, um, uh, to the, so you have Ramanujacharya giving rise to the Sri Vaishnava tradition, yeah. but uh, Ramanandacharya up in the north who focus a lot more on Ram Bhakti. You have a lot more of people belonging to Ramananda's uh, Sampradaya um, in uh, Guyana. So people yeah. who have their Shaligram or picture of Ramji inside their house where they would do their pujas. Uh -huh. And outside they would have a little small temple to Lord Shiva, they would call it the Shivalaya. Yeah, yeah. Where they would go and do Shivji's Abhishek in the morning. And um, right there, they would also have a janda, a flag pole to Hanumanji, uh, which is a typical, very um, Ram Ramanandri setup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 so uh, last year, I talked to Ram Daslam. I don't know if you know who he is. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, so uh, he's Ramanandri Sampradaya. So that was a... a, a Great to learn about his work in with the with the Ramanamis, you know. That was right. It's very similar in that sense, right? Where where people right. find in in the name of Rama, Krishna, Shiva, um, they find yes. the ability to transcend their their caste or birth or or economic status and get into you know what I think what uh, uh you know what they would call the family of God as opposed to the family of, of man. Yes. Um. So I mean, I mean, the history we could talk for a long time just about the West Indian experience, but you know, and that's important. And I, but that as a brahmachari, when you take that vow, that kind of that life kind of goes on the back end, right? Where your new life is focusing on on your goal, 
So mm -hmm. what, what is the goal of uh, Brahmachari here for you? <laughs> I don't know if I have a specific goal that is related to the life choice, but um, one of the things that I wanted to do um, when I took up the tradition was to find out more and more about Vedanta. Yeah. And having found out the amount that I know about Vedanta, I realized that there is a lot more, and that's why I went around collecting uh, the manuscripts I did for the PhD. Right. Um, but having collected those manuscripts, as I spoke of uh, our Jagat Guru, who passed in 2016, mm -hmm. um, there's nobody working on it. And they're not working on it because when they get to the scholarship, um, they see the legacy of colonial scholarship as very, very difficult to, uh, to pull apart. Uh, to decolonize that area of scholarship is very difficult because I was talking to, uh, to a professor and they said it quite nicely. It doesn't matter whether you're a DMK or Hindutva or whether you are anti-Brahmin or pro-Brahmin yeah. or Hindu or Christian. When you are learning your, where you're taking your education in, in India, you are learning what the colonials taught us. Yeah, about yourself. <laughs> about yourself. And so it doesn't matter if you're a Hindutvavadi yeah. or if you're a DMK. You're both of you using the epistemological tools that the British gave us. Right. And that have been regurgitated and reformulated. All of the reform that has happened in India has happened along the lines of the Protestant British. Yeah. Yeah. And before that, you can see with the other uh, communities that ruled uh, India that there were similar dynamics then. But the overarching ones now are more important because they're global, because right, the effect right. of, uh, of the British enterprise was glo more global than the other um, rulers beforehand. Absolutely. So when <laughs> what that does to our, uh, our, our, our tradition specifically is that they're presumed not to have existed because um, they, they don't find mention in the traditional sources when they're not taking into account that traditional sources are always the sources of the well-funded ruler and their, right. and their chosen guru or acharya, right? right? What do you do with a tradition like the Nimbak tradition that is living in the forest, eschewing everything else, doesn't have any links to any royal house until the 17, uh, 16 and 1700s and chooses that as a way to live into the morals of Vedanta that are yeah. called for. Yeah. Makes the task very difficult. So for me, I think that no matter what I may have desired as a human being beforehand, I think with this sense of history, the sense of connection that I feel to the, the call of Vedanta and also to the call of living it as well, not just talking about it and teaching it, um, I think that that's why I'm comfortable in the path that I'm in. Excellent. Um, wow. I mean... You got your PhD. Did you get that when you were in the Brahmachari phase or after or before that? Did it? Yes, it was, <laughs> it was during the Brahmachari phase. Yes. <laughs> I had to rethink there. So, uh, you know, Zoom has done a lot with my mind. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, 20, 20, I, I only got my PhD five years ago. Okay. Um, so I was definitely in, a Brahmachari. In India or in, uh, in UK? Uh, in, in UK, from the University of Edinburgh. Um, I did my master's there. I had intended to do my PhD at Oxford, but while I was at Oxford for that first term, um, the professor that I was hoping to do the PhD under, uh, he retired. So the, the, next best, the, sorry, the next best professor that was available was actually the original professor back in Edinburgh. So I went back. Was it uh, Nicholas Sutton that retired? 
No, no, no. Um, it was supposed, I wanted to do my PhD with Alexis Sanderson, but he retired that year. Okay. Um, and so I went back to do the PhD with Paul Dundas, who is a global expert on Jainism. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, is, is that what your PhD was on Jainism or? No, no, no. My PhD was on Vedanta. And so imagine um, how interesting it was to talk with an expert on Jainism about something yeah. that he was completely not interested in. Well, who, well, they got, I mean, part of my French, they got taken to task a lot with the Vedantic test too, right? Yes. A, lot, a lot of people would attack Jainism, uh, Jain philosophy and, and, right. and, the, and the straw man of Buddhism in some sense. Like, I don't think most of the Vedantins understood uh, the concept of Shunya or, or of Madhyamika. No, yeah. no, no. We, I mean, Prima Facie in, in, in Vedanta is always a very... I would take it with a grain of salt. Uh, it was more the, I have an opinion about you guys that I'm going to take as your <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it wasn't rigorous study done. Um, no. But okay, so you, you become a brahmachari now, and how did you um, get your PhD? And then you decide to move to the U.S., or was it just, uh, did something call you to come to these uh, hallowed states of America? Oh. So then you get into a bit more murky waters. Um, the path of the brahmachari lies in their ashram, right? Yeah. Um, but in order to make ashrams work these days, you have to involve yourself in the cycles of donors, donations, and mm. all sorts of things that are really, it's like oil and water with me. It doesn't, yeah, yeah. It does not make any sense. Um, and more importantly, in order to sustain those kinds of institutions, you have to be working on that rather than working on the research. Mm. Both of them are all encompassing. Both of them are demand the full measure of your time yeah um and to me the more important of those two things was to work on the research yeah so i once completed the phd i worked at the university of cardiff and at the university of london teaching sanskrit hoping that i would have the time to focus on the research that was a pipe dream um, yeah uh, it remained a very very distant dream and i thought that well maybe i needed to move out of the the teaching mode um, when happenstance was, I typed in this, uh, the search term Hindu into um, the, the, the search engines for mm -hmm. jobs. And while I had typed in Hinduism before, you know, thinking of a professor of Hinduism or Sanskrit, no jobs were coming up. Yeah. One job came up for Hindu. <clears throat> and that was the job at Georgetown University for a chaplain. And I thought, huh, that would be interesting. Uh, so that's where I ended up. Wow. Uh, I, I, I love Georgetown University. It's a beautiful school. It's uh, set in a nice area. Um, it, it's Catholic, which is really interesting, right? In the sense that the first uh, Hindu chaplain in all of the uh, United States, I mean, I don't know the world, but definitely United States, um, is at a Catholic university. A, a, a place you probably wouldn't think about that. <laughs> no, no. So the, the accolade of the first chaplain goes definitely to uh, Vineet Jandar over at Princeton. Okay. Um, and uh, there's also Asha Shipman in Yale, Professor oh. Ramdas Lama at University of Hawaii. So there are, um, I think in terms of mainland US, there are three professional Hindu chaplains. Yeah. Um, and about 27 or so volunteering Hindu chaplains. Um, but in terms of ones that are a monk and a priest, so I had done my Karmakanda training as well. Yeah. Um, that, it's very, very weird that it is also the first uh, appointment that a Catholic university has made yeah. uh, to, uh, to Hindu renunciates. So, yeah, it's been a very interesting experience. 
So we'll get into that in a second. Now you said Karmakanda. What, uh, what shaka did you study? <clears throat> so Shukri Ajurved Madhyandaniya shaka. Oh, wow. So you guys do the, instead of the Purusha, you say Puruka and you have... Yes, we are, diff- we are the Kakara people. <laughs> <laughs> it's always fascinating to me, like, uh, I mean, it's, it's funny to me, first of all, people love to say Veda, Veda, Veda. And then most yeah. people haven't really even read a single line of any Veda. And then, no. and then when they, and then like they might know like, uh, like uh, something for the Upanishads, which is the Veda. Yeah, that's I, I get that, but it's not, it's not the proper Brahmana portion of the Veda or the you know Mantra portion of the Veda. So it's a, it's obviously when I I learned some of it when I was young, um, not yeah. a lot, I, not not definitely in your realm here. Um, yeah. I have a few shukta, Suktams I I've lo- I, I've learned and can chant, nice. and obviously we've done. You know, in our tradition, we also do uh, yagnas and homas. And stuff, right. so we have some of that. Um, nice. But I find that uh, the differences between the shakas to be so beautiful, right? Like, like yeah. I, I, I'm sure you heard the uh, Samaveda sung and yeah. how different and how like, you know, and then it makes you think about the Gita. You're like, Veda nam Samavedos. I'm like, I understand yeah. where he's kind of where he's saying that. <laughs> exactly. I mean, some of the nicest things was to see the... Uh, you know, just see a yagya being performed by the Nambudiris. Yeah. Um, and more importantly, see the style of shikhav, the Nambudiri. I love it. I love yeah. that. I love, um, you know, to see when Taitariya Shaka Dhyayis come up um, and, uh, you know, they come to Veda conferences and you see um, them with other people who are following the Yajur Veda, but instead of um, just Varni, it's Yatha Varni Tatha Parni. Varni Parni the hand is moving hastaswaras, uh, the hand gestures or the accents yeah. um, on the Shukla Jarved. When you see that and you hear the different basic one like Gana Nantva, yeah. you hear that mantra just being chanted by both. It's it's such a wonderful diversity. Yeah, yeah. And the good thing is that there is no search for the quote unquote right version. No, no. no. It, 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 but we've known that from like as far as back as our textual exactly goes like yeah. they've talked about the various shakas right just they're mm-hmm. just different ways of of, of reciting performing it, but it's yeah. fascinating that 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 that's, there's no heterodox here it's all right. just all mixed together they're all like cool you're good to go mm-hmm. um but so your karma kind of training how long did you do that for that was the full six years um i did not go into the entire uh the, when it became apparent that they wanted us to learn, you know, Ganpata and all yeah. of the other uh, Jata and um, other types of Patas that existed. Right. I said, well, I need to focus on this because at that same time, I was uh, interested more in Vedanta. Right. Um, so enough to get me by. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and then the focus shifted to Vedanta. Well, since we just ended with the Karmakanda, you know, Brahma Sutta start with Atho Brahma Jignyasa, right? So right. in the same sense, like, you know, Ramaja interprets that as saying, after learning the Karmakanda, you go into this. Is that yeah. how Nimbarkar approaches it too? Nimbarkar, he, he takes a very interesting approach to it. So if I, I, I usually remember the uh, paraphrasing of his introduction to the first sutra, because yeah. he writes a very, very small uh, commentary on each verse. It's his, his disciple Srinivas Acharya that takes the time to really go into the depths that Shankaracharya right. was going into. Um, so he says that having seen the hypocrisy of the world and the, oh. and the and the fruitlessness of activities a person takes the time to study 
and learn more about what activities would lead to success. Having tried those activities and found them to be tempor uh, temporary, yeah. that person tries to understand the, the nature of these works and studies Karma Shastra. Um, once he has studied the Karma Shastra, he realizes that there are imbalances and human nature problems that affect them. So he goes for the eternal uh, source of karma, which is Dharma Shastras. And he goes through Dharma Shastras and realizes that that too does not lead to final betterment. And with this sense of being utterly, um, uh, uh, utter, you know, not fatigue, but a despondency, there we are, mm. utter despondency, um, that that person then chooses either to give up or to pick up uh, the inquiry of Brahman. Um, and it's at that point that the person will pick up an inquiry into uh, Brahma Jigyasa. Uh, well, the Atato Brahma Jigyasa means once a person has gone through all of that, yeah. then a study into Brahman would be worth Undertaken, yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, so now let's get into the topic du jour, uh, Nambarkacharya. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's learn about Nambarkacharya, right? Because he, yeah. he is... He's one of the great Acharyas, in, especially in the Vaishnava tradition, but generally even in Vedantic tradition. You know, yeah. um, and, you know, he's, he's got, a, there's a lot of discrepancy about his dates, you know, which is, right. it spans from the time of, you know, time of Arjuna's son, Parikshit, to all yes. the way to, to the time before Shankara or after Ramanuja. There's just, there's so there's, many. There's so many. And, and, and this is, part of me is at this stage, it's all, always, it's also like, if Indology can't figure out a fixed date, is it even a discipline at some level that can actually have a sense of engaging with the Indian tradition? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's another point. So let's talk about Nimbaka. Uh, who is Nimbaka Charya and what's the what's story? Well, let me start by painting a picture. Yeah. <clears throat> when it comes to ancient Bharat, we know that there were the 16 uh, Mahajanapadas, which should be translated as countries, yeah. um, plus the, the southern three. Um, so I would say 19 or 20, give or take, depending on what you're, uh, what you're looking at. All of these different states, all of these different territories had different ways of dealing with society. But what we see after the second urbanization is this desire amongst a few kings to become, to take the ideal of Ashwamedha and really apply it. Um, some say it's because they had interfaced with the Greeks or other kingdoms that were there at the time, whatever, whatever um, reasons that you can conjecture at that moment in time is mm -hmm. more based on uh, extrapolation rather than facts. Yeah. Um, and what we do see, however, is that when these empires start to expand, um, the kings want to try and make things easier to collect taxes. Who do you look to? Uh, in order to make your society work? Well, you look to uh, Brahmins, and specifically which type of Brahmin? The Mimansa Brahmins, because before it was the Mimansa Brahmins or the Veda Brahman, that would be the advisor to the king. And now, when you're needing to set up a new social structure, you also turn to them. I want to ask, does, do people read the Brahdhananika Upanishad? Do they pay attention to what Yagivalkya says? He talks about Brahmins who are not crooked and lusty. And he makes that point numerous times in the course of one teaching. And you have to ask yourself, why? He is part of the Mimasaka Brahman fold. 
And it makes so much sense, therefore, that if you're working with expansionist kings were, whose eyes are filled with money and women and all those things, that the Brahmins who choose to work and live at the courts are also going to be comfortable with that kind of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that all Brahmins are comfortable with that kind of lifestyle? I would definitely say no. Yeah. Right? I'm sure that there are numerous Mimamsaka Brahmins who were not interested in that life, but also from all the other traditions. Right? So when we hear of the Dharma Shastras and uh, how they reformulate society, you've got numerous people who are renouncing uh, society for that very reason, that now you can see imbalances between people are being created when in fact the whole point of Vedanta is to awaken people to the fact that Atma is present in everybody. So, in amongst these renounces, you've got renounces of different types, but the type of renouncer that Nimbar Bhagavan is, is the Muni. Mm -hmm. Muni we hear first about in the Rig Veda, when the Rig Veda is talking about Munis in the forests who are excelling to the heights of the gods mm -hmm. without actually being part of Vedic society. Right? And so, I would, I would conjecture that Yagya Valka could be considered a Muni once he renounces, because he too goes into the forests and uh, does meditation practice there. Nimbar Bhagwan similarly is one of these people out in the forests. He's in his little jhopri, his little uh, thatch hut, mm -hmm. and he lives a life that is traveling from place to place and not going to look for people to teach. But if people hear that he's there and they want to see what, he, what knowledge he brings in the way that of all old people in old societies, mm -hmm. They would come and listen and choose either to say, well, this is good, or not so. Nimbar Bhagwan is a very interesting character because he pays attention to the Prakrit sources, the, the folk tales, the folk history of India, and the Vedanta tradition, mm. the Vedic tradition. Now, we know, obviously, the stories talk of him being, uh, being a Telanga Brahmana, born to Arunarishi, his father, uh, Jayanti Devi, his mother. Um, but these are stories that we hear of a lot later. Yeah. So you can put Nimbar Bhagwan where you want him, basically, right. at this moment in time. Uh, but what we do know is that his view of forest dwelling and renunciation and living in the forest, whether you're a woman or man, uh, means that you're committing yourself to live by the principles of Vedanta. If you're living by the principles of Vedanta, you're going to have a problem seeing um, other people suffering because of, uh, because of other human beings. You're going to have a problem seeing other uh, forms of life, animals, uh, nature itself suffering because of human beings. You're not going to try and change the system because to try and take on a huge powerful system as one person is much more difficult than trying to have that system change from within by working with people from a human to another human. Yeah. So that's where I think Nimbar Bhagwan works best. He affects inner transformation on a person-to-person -person basis, has no desire to create thousands and millions of followers. Yeah. His desire is to teach whoever he teaches with complete integrity. Okay. So that's what I think Nimbar Bhagwan's contribution is, and that's probably why we don't hear of him in any of the major historical sources. You hear about yeah. him in the peripheries, but uh, not in the major ones. Okay. And what was what what was uh, his his story? How did he? What, what sampradaya is? Was he the founder of it? Was there someone before him? You know, and then what caused him to 
go down this path. Right. The Guru Parampara, he refers to his Guru as Narad Muni. Um, and so Narad Muni, whether you're taking it that he's, he's looked at chapter 7 of the uh, Chandogya Upanishad, had the dialogue between Sanat Kumar and Narad Muni as his ideal and made Narad Muni his guru that way. Yeah. Or whether we follow the traditional sources in our tradition where we say that Narad Bhagwan actually saw Nimbar Bhagwan and became present before him to give him Diksha, um, to follow the teachings of the Renuncia Upanishads. Um, both of those options exist. You could choose one or the other. Right, right. <laughs> So the parampara goes uh, that uh, Narayana took the form of Hansa, uh -huh. and Hansa instructed uh, Sanak Sanandan Sanatan Sanatakumar, and their disciple was Narad Rishi, and Narad Rishi's disciple is Nimbark Bhagwan, or Nimbark Muni. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he's inheriting a tradition. Funnily enough, uh, Shaiva Siddhanta has Sanak Sanandan Sanatan Sanatakumara as well, right. but they have him as disciples of uh, Dakshinamurti. So. Um, when you look at the, uh, the people who claim their lineage yeah. back to Sanaka, uh, the Sanakadi Rishis, they all tend to be more renunciate folk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these, these four young boys were renunciates, right? I mean, yes. or they're not young boys, they just have the appearance of young, young boys. Right. Uh, which, is, which is an interesting story in and of itself. Um, yeah. But, okay, so he takes this, uh, this sampradayic path. What do we know about his life? What do we know about his life? We know that he traveled extensively in Bharat. We know that there were a few incidents of, of record in, uh, in Tirvanantapuram and also in uh, Gujarat. Uh -huh. Where exactly those, places, uh, those incidents took place, we do not know. But we do know that he was born um, in a place near Vedurja, what was called Vedurja Pattanam, which is now Mungi Pethan um, okay. in uh, Mahara, uh, what is now Maharashtra. Okay. Um, and so he lives there for a while with his family, and then uh, in his youth, they migrate up to Braj. Um, so specifically, um, what is now known as Nimbark uh, Ashram or Sudarshan Ashram, there are many names for it. Mm -hmm. We call it uh, Nimbagram in Sanskrit or Nimgaon in um, Braj Vasha. Yeah. It is right between uh, Govardhan and Barsana. Okay. Um, so for him, that is an opportune place. Um, and he stays, he uses that as his base, but he goes around, as I said, uh, the entire country. Some of uh, the stories have him going as far as um, Assam uh -huh. and inspiring people over there um, with Vaishnav Dharma. So you've got him going around to quite a few places. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, because I mean, it's, it's, it's always tough to talk about. Um, I mean, I feel like Gunbaka and even Vallabhacharya don't have much of a historical story to tell their message is much more uh, focused on their message as opposed to what their life was like. Cause I, I was, I've been trying to find more history as to Nimbarka and like his, right. his life. And, you know, right. you know, like for example, we have, we have Ramanuja's story or Shankara's we have pretty, right. I'm not saying these are facts. We, we right. have as a story about their entire Correct. lives. Correct. And I think with Nimbarka, there's not that much about it. There Even is one source we have for him. It's okay. called the Nimbarka Vikranti. Uh, with regards to your point of Vallabhacharya, Vallabhacharya is very well known. Okay, he, he is. Dates okay. down, his dates are No, down. his dates for sure, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what he did in between, they have the, eight, the tradition of 84 betaks or places that he sat and taught okay. um, across India. And so that, that's very well researched. And again, because they're a regal tr a tradition that had very close ties to royal families, Yes. Um, their history has survived a lot more intact. It's more 
accessible in Rajbhasha and Gujarati language because a lot more of the people uh, who follow that tradition are over in Gujarat. With regards to Nimbar Bhagwan, because nobody had actually translated the Nimbarka Vikranti until 50 years ago. <laughs> wow. Most okay. people didn't know about the history. Most people didn't know that the book existed. Uh -huh. And then um, I gave a, an abridgment in a, a Hinduism Today um, special that um, the monks, the Shaiva monks in Hawaii invited yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, me to write. And you do get a sense of uh, someone who obviously followers of Nimbar Bhagwan ascribe him to be the Sudarshan Chakra avatar. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of Sudarshana uh, symbolism in all of his stories. Yeah. Um, but we have a fair, fairly good idea of where he went. He went all the way down to Tamraparani. He went down to uh, Ananta Padmanabhaswami for his darshan. He went uh, over to Dwaraka. He was all the way up in um, the mountains in Himalaya. So if you see his kind yeah. of life story mirrors a lot of the aspirations we would have for Acharyas of that caliber. Sure, sure. Wow. Um, what was his philosophy? What's, what is Veda Abeda or, or Dvaita Advaita? <laughs> This is always the tricky one. Yeah. Um, if you read um, Hajime Nakamura, who was uh, instrumental in putting a date on Shankaracharya's life. Yeah. Um, and analyzing also the pre-Shankara Vedantins. Yeah, I have his uh, books. Uh, the the pre-Shankara, yeah. It's fantastic. Great. <laughs> Some really good research there. Yeah. Um, what he says and what Fasheng says, what other observers have said of the Vedanta tradition is that at its core, it is a Veda Veda tradition. And it took Shankaracharya to give it an Advaita Vedanta perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, and that too obviously has its roots, but he really crystallized it in a certain way. Yeah. Um, if you read Shankaracharya, you will see that he has, as Purva Paksha, quite often uh, Swabhavika Veda, uh, Veda Veda or Swabhavika Advaita Advaita. Yeah. And if you look at his Brihadaranyaka uh, Bhashya, yeah. his commentary on the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, he rails at people from the <laughs> Swabhavikud Veda Veda tradition. Yeah. And that's for no other reason than we are very close in terms of not only practice, but worldviews too. Yeah. The Advaita part of Veda Veda is never denied. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The part that is a trouble for people who are only on um, uh, Advaita yeah. is where we say that whilst we recognize everything is one in substance yeah in terms of the uh, the time that we're in there is definitely a difference okay right all of that dissolves at a point but then it reappears from that same point with same uh, with the same kind of uh, differences again as we know that the cycle of sansara is eternal that means there's yeah. no creator if you're dealing with brahman you're dealing with a source that has all of this stuff within it and everything else. Right. Right. So Veda Veda, recognizing that the, there is an innate, natural connection of uh, unity and difference that yeah. is Swabhavik Veda Veda, knowing that that exists, what do you do with that knowledge? The entire point of Vedanta is to help people meditate yes. in order not only to solve themselves, but to solve how they deal and interact with people so that they can too be liberated right. from suffering. Um, and I, I like how a few of the scholars are uh, reminding us that the translation of dukkha is not only suffering, suffering. or sorrow, but also discontent and dissatisfaction. Yeah. So if you're delivering yourself from that, it's a good idea. By meditating on Brahman, okay, great. Tell me more about this Brahman, yeah. the Brahman Sutras. 
okay, great, but still there's nothing, you know, concrete I can focus on. So help me focus on this. Well, then the Upanishads do the entire thing where they're equating Brahman with symbols. Uh. So we can try and focus on those symbols. Nimbhat Bhagwan's innovation was to use love as a symbol. Mm. Now, if you're using love, you can say, oh, well, I can meditate on my mother because, you know, she loved me and she's, uh, she's a good enough symbol for Brahman. Yeah. That's true. But then you also get to the parts where you're thinking of her and you're going to remember those, those times when she had to chai, uh, you know, uh, chastise you or yeah, scold yeah. you. Um, and so that, that doesn't hold as a good enough symbol for Brahman. But what held for Nimbhat Bhagwan was listening to the poetry that came to his ears at that point in time. And in the poetry, in the Prakrit language poetry, you have a lot of Radha Krishna stuff. Radha Krishna poetry goes back as far as uh, Hara's Gaha Sattasai. Uh, so King Hala's um, Gatha Saptashati in Sanskrit is Gaha Sattasai in Prakrit. And that poetry that? comes from like the third century BC. Oh, really? So there are some poems from that kind of time, although we think that the compendium probably happened around the first century BC. So hearing about Radha Krishna, what he said is that Parabrahman for us is Parabrahman. Yeah. But if it makes it easier for you to meditate, Bhakti Chiyopata Suchinti Vigrahad, if you want it to become a little bit more easy to meditate upon, yeah. here is Radha and Krishna. They are together Parabrahman. So Nimbhat Bhagwan is not usually rec re remembered for his Vedantic point of view, but because Radha, Radha Krishna Upasana has been taken up by many different traditions, yeah. when you look for the origin of that, it's him. Yeah. I'll give you another fun fact. Sri Ramanuja and uh, Sri Madhvacharya, whilst writing their Brahma Sutras, never referred to, uh, or the commentaries never referred to Parabrahman as Krishna. No. Nimbhat Bhagwan did. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But for Ramana it was all Narayana, right? It, it was his... all Narayana. Yeah. And so for Dimbar Bhagwan, you could also say that he's the first person to bring Krishna into the Parabrahman League in Vedantic discussions. Obviously, that's happened in the Bhagavad Gita before. We have no problem with that. Yeah, yeah. But to actually talk about Krishna as Parabrahman, right, with the full force of Vedanta behind it, that would yeah. be him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, uh, so there's a lot of threads here. I, I, I find, first of all, I, I, the history from a perspective. So I hope you don't take any of my questions the wrong way. And no, no, I, I have, I've always wondered, for example, Radha, right? So the, mm -hmm. the Radha, the, the first recognition that I have of her actually being explicitly spoken about was not even in the Bhagavatam where, where you think you find her, but you don't. You find an off stanza in which they connect to Radha uh, about that particular gopi that was very Correct. special to Krishna. Now, Correct. The first recognition that I have, that, and this is new, uh, something new that I, I didn't know before, you just brought mm -hmm. out, was the, uh, the Gita Govinda is the first real kind of deeper mm -hmm. interaction. I, I know there's other texts that, like right. Brahma, um, uh, Brahma Hare Krishna, Purana? Yeah, Brahma Virta Purana. And then mm -hmm. there's an, another text that uh, Narada something uh, Sutras. I haven't read either of those. So, yeah. um, but I know those two texts indicate Narada as a supreme. Uh, mm. being along with Krishna. Um, yeah. So you're, you're telling me there's texts that came well before that? In, oh, well, in before that. Okay. well before that. Well before that. Uh, 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 who has listed them? I think Valerie Stoker had listed them. I've listed them in my PhD. Wow. Um, the, these sources are the sources that, and so this is another point to contend with. I'm going to say it. You might get hate. I might no. get a lot of hate. Um, when we are dealing with 
the longevity of traditions in ancient India, because we have studied through the colonial lens, yeah. we looked for texts only mm -hmm. and evidences, material evidence of traditions to uh, point to their longevity. Yeah. When we read, for example, the Agamadambara of Jayanta Bhatta, the famous yeah. Nayayaka, and he's talking about contemporary Kashmir in the, in the 11th century, in the 10 hundreds yeah. in Kashmir, he has a very famous little dialogue about how um, some Mimamsa Brahmins are complaining bitterly about the Vaishnava heathens who are <laughs> taking on our symbols of the Sikha and the Sutra and the Tilaka. They're pretending as if they're Brahmins and yeah. they're walking around gaining the favor of the queen. Yeah. That is in Agamadambara. And I'd like to remind people that Vaishnava Dharma originally is not a Vedic Dharma. Yeah. It becomes Vedic due to the work of these Acharyas who are trying to help um, you know, Vedic society and ancient society both coalesce and live uh, in the same place, knowing that there are a lot more commonalities and differences, right? So one of the things that lives in the yeah. ancient memory of ancient India yeah. is Radha and Krishna's relationship. Huh. That's old. How do you know it's old? Because Halas Gahasatta uh, Gaha has it, and a lot of poetry from during the Gupta era also refers back to Radha, Radhika, Radha, Radhika, Radha. Both names okay. are used interchangeably. Another a name that is used interchangeably is Gopijana. Gopijana, uh, yeah. Which is literally that Gopi girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so these traditions exist. We know yeah. how things coalesce. We know that yeah. the, the story of uh, baby Krishna and young Krishna comes to us through the Harivamsha. Yeah, yeah. Not in the Mahabharata. In Mahabharata, we hear of the King Krishna. Yeah, yeah. Which, right. which by the way, I love the, the way they do that in the Mahabharata because, like, in the entire text, you're always you're, you're, you're circumspect, about, uh, circumspect, uh, circumspect about Krishna, who he is. Like, yeah. And then he reveals it throughout, but yeah. the, the Harivamsha, the Kila that's added on at the end, Yep. expand on his backstory, which is meant, I mean, there's allusions in the Mahabharata to the Harivamsha. Correct. And even Vishnu Purana has uh, the baby Krishna in some sense, but not right. really. And then not you really, really, and then you really yeah. get that in the Bhagavatam where it's like exactly. really like, like played upon. Yeah. So we need to see these texts not as evidence of linear progression, yeah. but as uh, evidence of confluences of numerous streams of people and their own, uh, you know, beliefs of, of, of who Vasudeva was. Right. Vasudeva being across the entire continent um, in some form or another, um, that's something we see now. But what it meant back then was that there was a Vasudeva-esque character that each of these tribes uh, of our ancestors used to follow. Right. And so one of those streams includes the Radha Krishna stuff. Okay. Okay. So when you, when you pull those together now, you have the Vasudeva who is the king. You have the Vasudeva who is the kid over in, in, in Gokul. Mm -hmm. You have the Vasudeva who will save you because he's Parabrahman. Eh, he will save you because he's Ishwara. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's also the object of all meditation because he's Parabrahman. Yeah, yeah. Now, by the time Nimbar Bhagwan uh, gets all of this material, he's now uh, just 50 years shy of Shankaracharya's uh, uh, birth. Mm -hmm. It's now a time when he writes um, that Parabrahman is symbolized by love. That is the most pure you can go, unconditional love. Yeah. And if you're looking for that symbol of what unconditional uh, love looks like, you must look to Radha and Krishna, who are not two separate beings, but the same being in two different forms. 
Interesting. I mean, because it, 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 it's fascinating. Um, in, in a similar way, you know, obviously, Ramanujan's tradition is the Ubay Vedanta, where he has the, exactly. the, the Alvar tradition, which is very vernacular yeah. and, and yeah. separate from the Vedic tradition in some yeah. sense. And, and then he, so Nimbaka, in some sense, is also doing something similar. Very guess, similar, just with yeah. a different uh, folklore. So instead right. of the instead of the uh, ancient Tamar uh, folklore, yeah. in this case, they're using the ancient Prakrit folklore. So how, I mean, so now we have these major Sanskrit texts, like we have the Mahabharata, which Nimbaka obviously probably knew inside out. He knew, and, he knew, yeah. And Vishuparana and these other texts. What does he see as the role of someone like Rukmi or Radha, uh, Rukmi compared to Radha or Sita compared to Radha? Because yeah. in, in, in most of iconography, Vish, Lakshmi and Vishnu are yeah. associated. And in the Vishupara, you know, Vishnu says, in Prasha says, you know, when you are born as man, you, as she is born as woman, connecting Vishnu and Lakshmi in every avatar. And, yeah. So what is the relationship between Radha and then Lakshmi? So Rimbar Bhagwan points us to Sri Chate Lakshmi Chapatnya. Yeah. So there yeah, are from, two. Sri yeah, that's in. So whenever Sattam, we yeah. whenever we hear Sri Hari, yeah, we've already seen Radha Krishna. Okay, right? Yeah. Because Sri is Radha, Lakshmi is uh, is Sita, Rukmini, etc. Yeah. Um, and you can tell that people in our tradition had troubles uh, dealing with this uh, this new theology. Yeah. Because um, only three guru generations down from him, yeah, uh, you get Purushottamacharya. Uh -huh. Purushottamacharya says, yeah, he actually means. Rukmini, so don't understand it as anything else. Uh, but he, just in case, there is this person named Radha. <laughs> within the tradition itself, there's this... Within the tradition itself. The actual tradition, uh, to yeah. be frank, the Bhagavata is not considered a Pramana in the tradition until yeah, the it, 1500s. Wow. Well, yeah. uh, that's also probably because the Bhagavata wasn't fully formed in the way that we have it today. Correct. But we also have, you know, authors were writing around yeah. the 12th century. We have uh, their their texts that survive. And even then, they've not accepted it. Um, was Vishnu Purana? Uh, Vishnu Purana was definitely accepted. You have the Mahabharata, you know, the traditional lot. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to his his super, uh, you know, sudden kind of explosion of this uh, Radha Krishna as, uh, as Parabrahman, it's like, okay, so where's the proof? He doesn't give you any proof, you know? Why should you have to prove that uh, uh, Radha Krishna, who the entire hist uh, who the entire population of that area remembered in such loving ways? Whenever yeah. they would think of Radha Krishna, you know, their minds would just float off into this uh, beautiful realm of peace, no matter what was going on um, around them. Right. And that was where it was. But I will say this very clearly: for him, that was the most intimate secret. Um, a private kind of meditation. Right. For him, people should start with Parabrahman and end with Parabrahman. Mm. But you can go to it through uh, his ideal method was yeah. uh, you start as a student of Vedanta. Mm -hmm. If you find Vedanta too much trouble, you can uh, f uh, do what is called Saranagati or Prapatti. Yeah. Uh, surrender yourself to Bhagwan, and who you would surrender, surrender yourself to was as Ramakanta Purushottama, which is now Lakshmi Narayana. Yeah. Right? So you can surrender yourself to Narayana, Lakshmi uh -huh. Narayana. If you have trouble surrendering yourself to Lakshmi Narayana, knowing that the rules of sadhana bhakti are very, very, very subtle yeah. and all encompassing, uh, then you can resort to your guru, and uh, your guru will try and formulate something that will work for you. But those who have gone beyond all of these, um, 
they might relish uh, the symbol of love. And if they're looking for the best symbol of love, then for them, within the bounds of the, uh, of the uh, initiated, Mm -hmm. then Radha Krishna would be there for them. Otherwise, it is Lakshmi Narayana, and otherwise, it is um, Parabrahman. Okay, very, very fascinating. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna probe some deeper here. Uh, what is the nature in the relationship between Vishnu or Narayana and Krishna in in this? Right, because uh, is he avatara or is it is or the source of the avatars? You know, mm. number one, they're both the same. Yeah. Um, number two, uh, Vasudeva is the one that we're looking for. Uh, Pancharatra is where we're going with this, right? Yeah, Pancharatra <laughs> being one of the older, uh, older bros that were around at the, at the time. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> Pancharatra is too. Right. Also knowing that Pancharatra is uh, heavily Narayana-centric as well, by yeah. the time it gets digested by the, uh, by the Brahmana literature. Yeah. Um, but we... In referring to Bhagavan Krishna, the word avatari is always used. It is used with metrics. Yeah, so avatari, uh, right. the source of all avatars, okay. um, is always used with regard to him. And I think the great thing about the Nimbak Sampradaya is it is open to your particular point on the spectrum. Whether yeah. that spectrum is Parabrahman all the way through Lakshmi Narayana, all the way through to Radha Krishna, even in the Middle Ages, um, Sita Rama. And in, in, in even more places, even Umamaheshwari, Shiva, Shiva, mm. Shiva Parvati, sorry. Yeah. So, so I think that leeway comes because we're not really concerned too much about the symbol. I see. But we are concerned about the tattva, which is Parabrahman. Yes. So we will spend a lot of time trying to discern what Parabrahman is and what Parabrahman means for us. Yeah. Um, but if we want to go down the devotional route to establish, you know, a more emotional relationship with Parabrahman, then we will try and help you through uh, discerning what symbol is going to be best for you. So in, in, within the Barker tradition, you can do Shiva and Uma together yeah, yeah. As, a, as, your, as your, I guess, Ishvara in that sense, right? It's it, a lot it, less common because all of the teachers in the tradition are more focused on uh, Narayana universe, kind of. Yeah. Um, but there are a good number as well that do focus on Bhagavan Shankar and uh, Bhagavati Parvati. That's good. I mean, that's something I, I think that I find lacking within the Sri Vaishnava tradition. Mm. It's in some sense very insulated, just to Vishnu-centric everything, which, mm. you know, in some sense is okay, but I also find it that takes away from its uh, universality um, mm. application. But in, in, in the Nibarka tradition also, so so is there... Krishna becomes the source of the avatars, including Vishnu, or, I mean, I know they're one of the same, and that's always a difficult question, because it's very similar to Jiva, uh, Brahman, and that's in some sense, right? Because, sense, yeah. because Nimbaka uses, I, last I recall, he uses a lot, which I find the analogy interesting, of the snake and the coil. I yes. remember, so he, he, he was one of the few that I saw that used that much more than, like, the typical, the, ray, the sun and the rays, and Correct. so he was very particular with that analogy. Um, yes. So, can you can you kind of kind of go into that if you? Um, so his use of Ahikundalava, uh, that that lovely uh, sutra, the Brahma Sutra, is interpreted in in various ways. Yeah. Um, he said the apparition, the appearance, yeah, nonetheless inspires the same kind of emotions within you. Yeah. Right. Um, just because. It is a. It, it appears as a rope. Yeah. 
right? You will think it's a rope and you will go to it and you will try to hold it. When you see it's a snake, you'll be scared out of your skin. But in both situations, the reality of what you're feeling is not lost. Yeah. Right? The misapprehension of something, we are more focused on the fact that Brahma Parinamavada is our, our, uh, our central thesis. Yes. That Parabrahman transforms into everything that's here. So it's not about, uh, it's not about illusion. It's not about, you, got that. Um, you know, that it's only one. Yeah. We, are, we say that, yes, it's only one, but um, it's because the one has transformed into everything that's here. So when you say transformed in the sense, like, uh, so what is the nature of difference and similarity between it, Brahman, a, Jagat, very, Brahman? It's a very interesting one because I was reading up about what Shankaracharya was saying about, uh, you know, Swabhavik His central thing was that the Nyaya says you cannot have two opposite um, issues or two opposite realities existing mm-hmm. in the same thing. Yeah. Right. Nimbar Bhagwan says, why not? <laughs> which is, which is a, a legit point, right? The, right. The, the law of excluded middle doesn't need to be applied. <laughs> right. So, um, so he, he lives into all of that and his interpretations of the, uh, of the Bheda uh, Vakyas in the Upanishad and the Abheda Vakyas are always pulled by, by, by this central the- uh, theory, which is you can have both options in the same substratum. Right. Mm. At the same time. At the same time. Okay. At the same time. And you'll ask him, well, how is that possible? You can use something very similar uh, to, the, uh, to the notion of, you know, the, the, the wife that sat between her daughter and her husband. Right. <laughs> she's, both to, she's different to the daughter and to the husband. Yeah, yeah. But she's doing so at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because it's, what's interesting is, so you end up having the Chaitanya Sampradaya using Achintya to explain Achintya. that difference, right? And then actually Shankara does the same thing with, with his concept of Maya or Avidya. It's both yeah. real and unreal, right? It's, it's in, in between. So the same concept can be applied to that, but, yeah. it, it, you know, it's, so, but what is the, na- is, so what would be the nature of the difference and similarity? Is it, is it qualitative, quantitative? Is, I mean, what would differentiate the jiva from Brahman and what would make him similar or him and her? Mm. Well, him and her doesn't apply, but yes. Right. Uh, Time is the one that causes the difference. Yeah. And once time ceases to exist, difference ceases to exist. But knowing that time never really truly ceases to exist because everything exists forever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know how that that story is going to go. You would go into... um, uh, regress at infinitum with uh, yeah. with with that logic, but it is a sound logic in the sense that if the cycles of emanation and uh, dissolution are eternal, yeah, then there is never going to be an original point. Yeah, yeah, you know, I agree there. Um, but I mean, for example, so say moksha occurs, or sure. is the individual atma ah. merged and right. obliterated, or does it still maintain some sort of existence? Now, I mean, yeah. So this one is the one that I would, I would draw in the experience of the other uh, sampradayas as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in as much as the spectrum is being uh, validated here. Yeah. Moksha is the goal, right? Whatever it is. Moksha is the goal. Actually, for you... some, most people, uh, many of the acharyas say that even that's not the goal, right? The goal <laughs> isn't the, a moksha. It's the, it's well, the loving, loving connection to Bhagavan constantly. Well, see here. 
Um, what Srinivas Acharya says right at the beginning of his uh, sutras on, uh, on his commentary, the Brahma Sutras, is that there are certain Paryayavati words that we should understand not as being different, uh, sorry, yeah. synonyms, uh, uh. that may have been described as if they're referring to different theories, but actually refer to the same thing. Okay. So one of the straightaway, he goes right off the deep end with uh, Nididhyasana, um, Manana, Dhyana, Samadhi, and Parabhakti, those five. Yeah, they're all the same. He says they're all the same. Okay. Because in all of those states, the state that is elicited is one of complete uninterrupted focus on an absorptive focus on that, uh, that Parabrahman, that Paramtattva. Yeah. Now, the devotee person mm. would attain to that state, that state in which they are now merged into the same um, uh, abode of, yeah. of, of, of um, Radha Krishna, and they would exist there in perpetual bliss, um, witnessing the, the various leelas of um, Radha Krishna. Right. But that is no different than saying that the person is absorbed completely in Parabrahman. Right. Right. I, I mean, yeah, I think this is more of like a visual comp, uh, component that we're, that messes with us more than the conceptual, yeah. right? It's, it's, right. It's, it's like, oh, we're watching it as opposed to being there. It, it feels different in our it heads, is, but yes. the feeling would still be the same. I the would, feeling I would, would still be the same. Look, the semantic difference is something yeah. that we've been pointed out again when Bhagavan says, you know, this whole notion that beware of flowery language. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, and then you get the whole uh, teaching in the Chandogya Upanishad between um, uh, Udalaka, uh, Udalaka Aruni and Shrita Ketu. Yeah. And he's saying, you know, just by learning that this is uh, made of iron, iron, everything that's made of iron is known. Yes. Right? What is everything else? Everything else is just Nama Arambaram, Vikaru Nama Deyam. It's just a, a name. Nama Rupa. Is, yeah. Yes. It's just form. allotted by consent, uh, you know, conventional knowledge to something. In the same way, we need to take a stock of how we think of moksha. Are we yeah. going to put in all of these very, are we going to concretize these meanings? Yeah, yeah. Where the acharyas were more open in helping people wherever they were at. Right, right. Because, I mean, it, it, it's, it's like that saying, uh, what's it? Ano badram nivartante apraapya manasasaha, right? Where, yes. Yato vacham nivartante. Yes. Yeah. Where the mind goes, you know, uh, you know, it's, where speech goes, mind cannot follow or something of that nature. Yeah. I forget. Um, where, from where um, words yeah, so return. Watch them. Yeah, yes. words return, the mind cannot go. Yes. Yeah. So Having not been able to understand what has gone on there. Yeah. Exactly. So it, that's exactly what I think, like, where, when we talk about things like moksha, we can't really talk about them. It's, a, it's this experience that you just kind of have to let be. And, yeah. and, and in the same way, you know, like most of the acharyas even talk about the nature of of this um, of Brahman is some sense it's like looking at the moon you can only point through it through something else mm-hmm. you can't directly show them the moon right or Correct. explain it so uh, to me it's a uh, it's this is always a difficulty when we get into these like really deep elements but I love it I love learning what these learning differences because right. your explanation here gives a much more open end than right. um, than many other people would would say about what the nature of moksha would be. Ah, I see, I see. Um, and I mean, it comes into real force during, uh, you know, tumultuous times. Yeah. Because at that moment, you can help people, no matter what their prior beliefs were, 
yeah. and without changing them, you know, this is yeah. not a proselytizing organization. This is literally dudes in dreadlocks out in the forest. Um, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> and by that very same token, not only dudes, but also ladies out in the yes. forest um, uh, uh, in their own ashrams, um, all there just to help people. Yeah. So in the Nimbarka Sampradaya, I mean, I don't want to gloss over these philosophical things. And I don't know how much our viewers actually understand this, but I just, I think it's fascinating to know. Um, is there, what is the role of Radha and Krishna within the Sampradaya? I mean, is it, is it similar to, um, I know they're one, but are, mm -hmm. do they have separate roles in terms of sadhana or in terms of ultimate uh, like, do you, can you only get moksha by going through Radha or, you know, you know, they have those kind of situations like we have in some forms of Sri Vaishnavism where Lakshmi yeah. becomes the, the way to get moksha, the only way to right. get moksha. So yeah. what's, what's Radha's role within the theology? here? As time has gone on, people have uh, introduced different ways of thinking about it. Huh. Uh, but as far as Nimar Bhagavan was concerned, the two are one and the same. Yeah. Um, and so the path to moksha, which is Bhagavad Bhavapati uh, Lakshana Moksha, which is attaining the same state as Parabrahman, yeah. um, that is uh, completely attainable through any of those methods I described before. And so if there is that much leeway, yeah. then there is going to be the leeway that is allotted to or commensurate with one's own um, bhakti rasa, yeah. um, whichever flavor of bhakti that they're more used to imbibing yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, later on, obviously, we get a situation where the kings move into Vrindavan. Mm -hmm. um, and as the kings come into Vrindavan, everything starts to change again. Um, uh, where there's more emphasis on Radha only, or more emphasis only on Krishna. And then, well, because Radha is never his wife, and we're very, very Vedic, we must focus on Radha, uh, Krishna and Rukmini. And, uh, oh, well, we don't care about those things. It's love that's supreme. Well, then we're back to Radha and Krishna again. <laughs> there's a whole kind of gamut, a universe of, of thought on it. And um, my Guruji's guru, I asked him the question, what's the right way? And he says, you know what? Go back to what Nimbhat Bhagavan said. Whatever makes your meditation easy. What is, this, what is the sara of that statement? Whatever yeah. makes your meditation easy means meditate. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So whatever, you know, there's yenake and prakarana, whatever way it is, just get to a state where you're on an uninterrupted stream of meditation. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, so what's, what's, uh, what, what's, what was Nirmbaka's sampradaya's relationship to things like the role of women, the role of other communities, uh, like Jatis, yeah. Varnas, whatever. I mean, yeah. how did they interact with that? Was it a very Brahminical or was it, I mean, yeah. Right. You know, this colonial mindset I was talking about where we're yeah. looking only to texts. Yeah. If we are colonialists, we will refuse to understand that a person might write something and do something different. Right. For example, the stumbling block that everybody throws at Vedanta is the Apashudra Adhikarana. Of, of the Brahma Sutras, yeah. right? We completely forget and always marginalize the fact that when writing as Vaishnavas, mm -hmm. we are already considered by the majority tradition to be outsiders. And so you must, uh, things that are considered sacrosanct within somebody's uh, society, um, such as the, uh, the, by that time it was the Jati system, by that time, uh, what was Jati? was a big concern for uh, the empires uh, of the day, you know, mm -hmm. whether it be the Guptas or, the, uh, or those um, around the other parts of the country. People were preoccupied with that. 
<clears throat> because it was a central way to ensure that your state would function correctly. Right. So when they're writing, they're going to say something that would make the people who are reading um, think that these guys are okay. They're part of us too. Yeah. Um, how many people read? Not many. Not many at all. Tiny yeah. population. Right. So when Ramanuja has uh, Kanchipuran as a guru, um, when the Arvas consist of people from across the uh, sections of society, yeah. when Prakrit Bhasha is not spoken by um, what you call traditional upper castes, mm -hmm. if that's what you're going to use, or the higher jatis, um, you've got to understand there that our Acharyas are living in two different worlds at the same time. Right. Nimbar Bhagwan, for his part, because the only parts of uh, his writings that we have available to us um, are the Brahma Sutras and a few Stotrams here and there, you can see that in the devotional stotrams, he's a lot more, um, he's talking in universalist terms. Mm -hmm. um, when he's writing in the Brahma Sutra, you see that he's following convention. Right. The same thing with Ramanuja. Right. Sri Ramanuja Acharya follows convention when he has to write conventionally, but he acts universally when he is free to be himself, which is in his day-to-day -day life. Right. Same thing with Shankara and the Chandala episode. Yeah, yeah. Right? So Bhakti is that one tradition that because it has grown from the soil in recognition of everything, like really you can taste the flavor of, of the land of the ancients yeah, yeah. Through, through, through bhakti, um, especially the universalist kinds. You will see that women have equal space to men in the older versions of this. After obviously empire gets through with us, we've got a different way of, be of being. Absolutely. Um, but even then, some of the most famous uh, sadhvis of our tradition have been obviously sadhvis. So the <laughs> most famous, <laughs> such a difficult thing to draw this uh, line between English and... and it is. And it's so hard, right? Because yeah. it's in, it, inherent in the word itself, sadhvi. Exactly. You don't need to say woman anymore. <laughs> you don't need to say that there, was, there were sadhus and sadhvis. That's yeah. it. You know? And even now in Vrindavan, the vast majority of Nimbarkis who are practitioners who live in the old ways are sadhvis. Um, there are a few sadhus, but there are also a good number of sadhvis. Now, do these so, sadhvis also take very similar vows like yourself? Oh, yeah. They take the same vows. They teach other women. They teach men in, 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 in some cases as well. So yeah. um, it's not the case that these are women only for women or, and men are only for men. But both, uh, both genders are looking for, and all three genders, rather, are looking for um, uh, people who have taken the vow of renunciation seriously. Okay. And then it doesn't matter who you are, you can teach them. Now, what's the relationship between the Grihastha Ashrama and the Sannyasa? Is it, it within the Nirmbaka Sampradaya? Is it, is it um, at odds with each other? Is it, because, you know, some Sampradayas require some sort of uh, Sannyasa for even the connection to Moksha. Um, uh, moksha is available to everybody. Okay. So for us, the Sannyasa portion of this is for those who want to become teachers. Uh -huh. Those who wish to preserve the teachings, live the teachings, and disseminate the teachings. Rather preserve, I don't like the word disseminate the teachings. Yeah. So preserving the teachings. When it comes to uh, the grihastha life, grihasthas can, be, can achieve moksha through their own practices at home. Um, and all of those have been outlined in the tradition. Nowadays, those who want to stay in the grihastha line, but also teach, those are known as you know, pandits or acharyas. So the panditas tend to be those who are famous kathavachaks are also in this mix. Yeah. But, but the real sampradaya lives with the renunciate sadhus and sadhvis. Okay. And even amongst the sadhus and sadhvis, I would say would live with those who are more content living the old way 
in the in the jhopris in the in the kutirs rather yeah. than in in you know brick and mortar monasteries okay okay um now along with this okay so is there anything unique in the practice of nirbarka sampradaya that, yes. that, that would distinguish I forgot it got to mention yes okay so one of the other reasons, one of the next major reasons that you don't hear of the Nimbakar Sampradaya, obviously, is because there is no big temple connected with us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And that's because the old way of being a Muni, where are you going to find resources to have a temple? What were, more importantly, if you're part of an ancient tradition, yeah. you're going to follow the ancient ways of doing things. Right. Ancient ways of doing things were Shaligrama or Shivalinga, mm -hmm. right? If you're yeah. on the Shaiva or, or Vaishnava path. Absolutely. And Shakta has always been a lot more adaptable. Yeah. <clears throat> and with regards to us, we had, uh, so Nimba, the tradition is that Sanakadik Muni gave Narad Muni a Shalagram, a special Shalagram, yeah. which we refer to as Sarveshwar Bhagavan. Um, and that Shalagrama was passed on to Nimbar Bhagavan. That Shalagrama was passed on to his disciple, his disciple, etc., etc. So currently it is still being worshipped um, in the tradition. But because the Acharya would be moving, uh -huh. Nimbar, uh, for example, Nimbar Bhagavan would do the morning seva, put the shalagrama on his throat. Wow. Walk around. When it was time for Madhyana, uh, Sandhyan Puja, he would stop. Yeah. They would do the puja, would offer food, share food with everybody else. And then, you know, time to move again, back yeah. in the throat and off he goes. Um, so that, that Sarveshwar Bhagavan has been what we've focused on. Um, and in Vrindavana, and I went, this might get a little bit touchy for a few people as well, but sure. uh, being in Vrindavana as long as we have, mm -hmm. we actually never stayed in Vrindavana. We lived in Mathura or in uh, Nimbagram and would walk to Vrindavana, would do our sadhana in Vrindavana, and then would come out of Vrindavana before evening time. Because we would never want to, uh, to dirty uh, Vrindavana. For us, that was the pristine temple. The jungles of Vrindavana was the most divine temple on this planet. Right. There was no need for physical temples. Interesting. But obviously, six, uh, 1515, you get uh, the first people who come in that are used to having temples. Yeah. In Orissa, is a huge Jagannath temple. That temple yeah. has been there forever. So yeah. when people who are used to those kinds of temples come to Vrindavan, if Vrindavan looks like this poor, dilapidated, you know, undiscovered place. Right. When in fact, it was a place, as um, uh, the Megaduta reminds us, it yeah. is a place where people have been going to, to sing. Yeah. So I would say that that is a very big defining feature of our tradition. Okay. Um, you go to Vrindavan today and you say, well, oh, well, if Nimbarkis were there, why aren't there Nimbarki buildings around? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, very easy answer. The 1500s, those big temples that you see in, in Vrindavan that survived from that time were yeah. founded by uh, Chaitanya's followers who yeah. used king's grants to build them. Yeah. Whereas all we had in those areas were a few Jopris. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And those are ancient places, yeah. but they were nonetheless natural places. In 1757, when Abdali Shah Durrani comes through and uh, massacres everybody in, um, uh, on the day of Holi yeah. uh, in Vrindavan, his, his chroniclers record, you know, they, they gave a quarter silver penny to the soldiers if they killed a, a man, a full silver to a, if they killed a woman. Um, but they gave five silver pennies to the person who, having cut off the head of, a, of an infidel, tied it to a cow and threw it into a burning, um, uh, their burning dwelling. Oh, wow. Now, if you translate that back to what was actually there, yeah. you've got the, uh, the sadhus and sadvis and their jopris. 
1757, we actually lose the vast majority of all of our manuscripts. We lose the vast majority of our sadhus who knew how to, uh, to live like that. And wow. if you ever have the time, you should read, there's a lovely lament of a different Sampradaya's uh, sadhu huh? who was watching the entire thing. He actually heard that they were coming the night before and ran away. But one of his friends was a, a very famous poet called uh, Ghanananda or Anandagana. Okay. Anandagana, he talks, he, he, he really cries. This is, uh, the author is called Chacha Hit Vrindavan Das, mm -hmm. part of the Hitta tradition. And uh, he writes something called Harikala Beli, the, uh, the, the creeper of the, the, the activities of Hari. And his, his basic thing was that, how dare you, Krishna, let your, your people suffer in this way. Yeah. While, while being, you know, really, really devoted to Bhagavan Krishna at the same time. And he writes, people, I didn't even have the kind of faith in me that um, Anandagana had when faced by the, uh, by the overlords. He said, cut my body so that my, my blood mixes back in with the soil yes. of Vrindavana. Wow. Right? Wow. Um, so all of that, all of those wonderful people of that time, all of those, that knowledge that we've had in our traditions now, yeah. it's quite unfortunate in 20... Uh, 20 that I'm sat here with the with the with the remnants of our tradition. Yeah, um, that's I think what defines us the fact that we're peripheral to start with that there were quite difficult things happened uh, to our tradition in the interim. And now that today we're we're quite small. We're quite small. But yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the size doesn't matter. It's about the, the message. Yeah. And the, um, so another another tough question to ask and, and, and this I think is Problematic amongst all the Vedanta Sampradayas is, especially within the, the Renunciate order, the, the Sanyasi order, mm. it's very Brahmanized. I have not, to my knowledge, seen any one of the Matas anywhere have any significant non Brahmin presence. It's all the people there. Like, mm. even though the, the order is supposed to be, when you become a Sanyasi, caste doesn't matter, Jati, none of that matters to you anymore, it's still there. Like, you still see it. All, like even all the Shankaracharyas are all somehow Brahmins. All the Ramanacharya, Martas are Brahmins, Madhacharya, everyone I see is Brahmins. Is that the yeah. same within the Nirmbaka tradition currently? And if, if, if it is, what, what is it we can do as people, you know, that care about these sampradayas, that care about the messages, that care about our traditions, to really try to universalize it the best we can? Because that's what I think the intent of these, uh, of our founders were, is this yeah. shouldn't just be a place or a particular jati or varna. Correct. So remember how I spoke about the fact that the convention had to be maintained if you were not going to be exiled yeah. from a kingdom? Yeah. Um, so you'll get a lot of, uh, you know, even the tantras are referring to, come on, man, the tantras are not ready. We know this, <laughs> we know it, right? And <laughs> for the tantras to be calling for a guru to be brahmana. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You've got to understand what they mean by that. Yeah. If you're calling for your guru to be Brahmin, it means to be acceptable to Brahmin people. Yes. Right? So that when you're having debates with them, they will not point to you as being from a non-Vedic tradition. Yeah. And not even bother to listen to you. Yeah. So um, while you might find that as in scriptural exhortations, the lived life of an Nimbarki sadhu is that you will find lots of the Nimbarki sadhus and sadhvis are non-Brahmin by birth. Okay. And I've only found that when I pressed them and pressed them and pressed them to tell me about uh, their their former lives, none of them take take uh, the 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 rule about uh, disclosing your former life. They don't take it with a pinch of salt. They take right. that as as stock. So they will refuse to tell us 
that um, they don't come from this tradition or that, I mean, from this uh, family or that family. And you might say, well, oh, they're, they're just probably trying to preserve their image as Brahmins. Yeah. Um, and they'll say, absolutely not. We're not Brahmins. We're not Veshas. We're not Shudras. We're not this. We're not that. We're not the other. We are Vaishnav. Yeah. And Vaishnav from its inception has always declared that everything else is subservient yeah. um, as an identity. Yeah. All other identities do not matter. Um, the one that matters is your connection with your Parabrahman. Yes. So whether you're Shaiva, whether you're Shakta, whether you're Smarta, whether you're Vaishnava, um, or whether you're other traditions, that's the identity you should cling to, not this nonsense social constructed identity. Right. So at this moment in time, there are a good number of uh, people who are Brahmin in the tradition, but there are equal, if not more, who are non-Brahmin. Okay. And you might answer, well, why is there a preponderance, hyperponderance of Brahmins? If you follow the demographics of, of these, these uh, families since um, independence, mm -hmm. you will know that the poorest uh, people who have an inclination to, towards spiritual life come from Brahmin families. Sure, sure. And so those people know that they're going to be able to get something to eat, place to stay, if they follow their, their if they follow their, or rather lean back on their spiritual um, uh, pathway. Right. Um, whereas those who are uh, from non-Brahmin um, traditions, uh, sorry, non-Brahmin non families, they know that there are other things open to them. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have more questions. Do you have more time or are you running out? Where are we now? We're at 8.40. Um, 8.40. Okay. I have um, until the hour. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm loving learning about the tradition. I'm loving learning about all of the history and diversity within, you know, Nirmbaka. But now let's get back to the switch gears a little bit and go back to your life right now as a chaplain within Georgetown. Um, uh -huh. So how... So coming from your tradition where you aren't state-sponsored or uh, affiliated with, with wealthy merchants and things of that nature, how does it feel to have suddenly have, to have your, your, your sense more to, to a location and more to a particular people? Does it, does it feel a little burdensome to you or does it feel like is it difficult? It is a little difficult. And I, I suppose it's because so – you know, the, the soul of somebody who's been wandering around for so long. Yeah. <laughs> will never want to stay. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that too is, is good training. You know, we should be doing Chaturmasi at the moment. So yeah. uh, stopping the wandering around and staying in one place is a, is a good thing for this moment in time. Um, Georgetown brings with it its own um, set of complexities. Mm -hmm. uh, being an, a university in Washington, D.C., that location, the general geography of the place uh, informs its day-to-day -day reality. Yeah, I'm sure you have lunch with Trump every day and, you know. Oh. <laughs> I will forever be grateful that I need to take my lunch on my own. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, seriously, it, it's an interesting challenge. I've learned a lot from being at Georgetown. Yeah. I've learned what it means to really have the support of your, uh, of your tradition through legislation, through... Sure. Um, you know, grants and, and stipends and uh, scholarships and all of those things. Um, and see what it means when you don't have those things. Right. It's also very interesting to see how those, uh, those you know, quote unquote, material advantages right. 
affect your perceptions of your morals. Right, right. Your Vedantic ethics. Um, and so while uh, at some point I will lament very long about the fact that our, our people don't understand what it means to um, support their society, to preserve their heritage, uh -huh. and what preserving heritage means for the future. It's not about preserving notions of, you know, oh, we belong to this great golden past. Yeah, yeah. That's nonsense. We only reason that we should preserve our heritage is because of the way that we think. Yes. The way that we think, this open to discussion, this pluralistic, this we can deal with your multiplicity, we don't need you to conform to us, that kind of openness, that is what needs preserving. That is what our Native American friends are trying to preserve. That is what our Native African folks are trying to preserve. All of the Native traditions across this earth are trying to preserve, deal with diversity because that's natural. Well, that's, that, that is the state of right. existence is diversity and so that is the only thing that we need to learn how to protect as people and if yeah. we uh you know if we adopt ways that are similar or mirror um the ways that are being taken by um you know powerful society mm -hmm. we do ourselves and our histories an injustice an injustice that is so great that would actually erase us by our own selves right you know and i think this is i, I mean that that message resonates with me especially at this time in, in our history of and not, and not just America but globally right we're becoming so into two bifurcated into two camps where you're either on one side that is pure and more moral than everyone else or you're on the other side that is you know the the the, the ones that want to change the world and and you have to be with it or against this it's just such a difficult place I mean we see this in the United States right now with with this with this not only the, the purity of the left, but the, the rigidity of the right. And India has the same issues too. And, yeah. and this is, I, I, and I think partially, a large part is due to the fact that we have adopted by and large of a very Western framework of thought about what it means to have a, a functional society and a, a yeah. functional thought process. You know, yeah. and like you said, you know, Dimbarka's um, position of why, why can't we have both, right? At the same mm -hmm. time, right? Why can't you have this, that, and everything else, because that's what the, the Hindu or larger Dharmic tradition comes with, is this plurality is what is important and maintaining that plurality via conversation, via debates, via, because we, I mean, and I think this is the beauty of even the, the Vedic tradition, as opposed to mm -hmm. the, the Vaishnava and other traditions, is the value of the violence was seen as that has to be the last resort, which is why the Vedic tradition ends up even doing things of substituting animals in, I mean, uh, certain things in for animals when they do a oh, Vedic yeah. Yajna. And they have yeah. large discussions in the Mamamsa tradition about what himsa is, violence, right? If violence is so central to all existence, how do we minimize it? And right. Bach becomes the way we minimize it, right? To speech. That's very and if, important. And if we take that speech away, then violence mm -hmm. is the only thing that's left. Yes. Uh, Kumar al was great in all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very, very right. And uh, it's it, you, what keeps me at Georgetown and what has kept me at Georgetown yeah. to this day has been the fact that Hindus in America are comparatively new uh, yeah. to say Hindus in Europe. Right. Um, Hindus have a great opportunity at defining their narrative. 
Right. Um, are we going to continue to assume that the issues of Indian society are the same as the issues of Hindu dharma? Or are we going to be able to countenance the fact that we've got people from Bhutan, people from Nepal, people from Mauritius, Fiji, West Indies, South mm -hmm. Africa, Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, etc., mm -hmm. um, from the African continent, rather. You've got um, African-American Hindus. Uh, you've got people from Bali who say, and I, I really have a, uh, you know, I use this as an example. Um, you ask a Balinese person what they follow. Yeah. They'll tell you it's Agama Shiva. <laughs> if you ask a scholar what Balinese people follow, they'll say Hinduism. Mm. How do Balinese people follow Indianism? Uh, do they? When, when they follow Agama Shiva. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Agama Shiva and Indianism are two different things. Yeah, they're not the same at all. They're not the same at all. No. Um, and so when we are now in this seminal kind of, it is a watershed moment for Hindus in America. Um, this moment has been had in, in, in the UK and it's uh, developed in a different way. Yeah. But I think that Hindus in America, if they really rely on two really main principles, number one, discussion. Yeah. And number two, we, uh, you know, Taitariya Upanishad talks about finding a group of scholars and emulating the ones that are humble. Yeah. If they are confused as to way, way ahead, right? Yeah. That very important teaching uh, for the graduates uh, that comes from the Taitari Upanishad was predicated on us having uh, a sadhas or a, a sabha or a parishada yeah. of learned people who could deal with these things. Right. We have lots of parishadas. We have lots of, <laughs> right. uh, lots and lots of sabhas, but I don't know if you could call them all learned in the scriptures. And even if they are learned in the scriptures, do they follow that seminal quality that the Upanishad is asking us for? Are they humble? Yeah, yeah. 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 If Americans can formulate those people and listen to them a little bit, yeah, I think American Hindus will have a chance. You know, I hope you're right because I struggle with American Hindus a lot. You know, I've, I grew up in this country. I have met thousands of Indian people, Hindus, um, and 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 I can probably count on my two hands, how many people have a sense of these traditions or even a sense of what it means to be Hindu outside of identity, right? Like, I'm right. not very concerned with identity. I don't, I don't care about whether you identify as Hindu or not. That to me is secondary. My thing is, do you care about these ideas? Do you care about the way people think? Or do you, do you, do you care about these traditions? And, and I find that to be sadly a little less than what I would want, you know, it's, right. uh, um, and I think even in this day and age, we, I mean, you probably see kids today much more than I do, like in their college coming to, yeah. you to talk to you about Hinduism. And I don't know how, you, and, and I would love to get your thoughts on this is there's a sense of being Hindu is so wrong in this day and age in some sense. Cause like when I grew up being me being Hindu, wasn't wrong. It was, I'm the only freaking Brown guy, you know, I'm, I'm not Christian. You no, know, I wear tilak going to school. My dad used to make me wear you no know, namam going to school, and oh, wow. mm -hmm. I, I used to try to wipe it off. But there's <laughs> residual left, and people would make fun of me. I was vegetarian. You no, know, mm -hmm. I was as different from even I, I got picked on by black people, brown people, white people for being different. You, you know, so for me it was an issue of I don't want to be different that way. 
Now I, I love my difference, right? You know, um, but today, this day and age, most Hindus are accepted in society. They're they're just there, right? There's like mm-hmm. you're not the only guy in school that's Hindu. You're multiple people. You go to temples. And I find, but they're so afraid of their tradition. They're so afraid of their culture. They're so afraid of anything outside of Bollywood that makes them right. look good. It's it, it's a little daunting to me. I, I feel what keeps Hinduism alive in America, to be honest, is immigrants coming from India. Not so much people from here. I'll give you a little bit of a hope. Um, yeah, please. I think that our, our, <laughs> our, the younger generation, because of how uh, Black Lives Matter movement has been going and how yeah. um, issues have been raised, I think at Georgetown especially, number one, they started questioning their own histories uh, through being at a Catholic university that is so openly Catholic. Yeah. yeah. And so if you're not going to mass on Sunday, well, where are you going? Yeah. You know, why aren't you going to mass? Yeah. Um, oh, well, because I'm a different, I, I don't believe in that. Well, what yeah. do you believe in? Um, I don't know. My parents were Hindu, are Hindu. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so from that comes questions. And from that questions, it comes the deepening. Um, yeah. Whether or not you choose to follow it, it is important to have awareness about it. Sure. Right? Um, and our students, they definitely try to get awareness. I'm not saying all of them do. I know that right. there are about 350 registered Hindus at Georgetown, right. of whom I will see them all at Diwali. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but throughout the years, we have a sustained number of about 60 or so that come to our weekly artis. Yeah. Um, and for any of the bigger festivals like Garba, uh, so, uh, Navaratri that celebrated in the Gujarati style of Garba, um, we would have a hundred or so people. Sure. When it's when it's holy, we also celebrate Visakhi near the yeah. time because to celebrate holy what it is is probably when everything is iced over. Yeah. In DC, um, but uh, you get everybody comes out to those things. So what we try to do is to say to people, look, read uh, or listen to uh, Chimamanda uh, Chimamanda's um, talk. You know, uh, Chimamanda Adichie gave that lovely TED talk about the danger of a single story. Yeah. Um, try to realize that Hindus are not one people. No. We are not one people. You can talk about Hinduisms yeah. uh, in as much as that is a very poor replacement word for Vaishnava, Shev Shakta, Smartha, um, regional traditions, and um, the post 1800 Sanatana Dharma movement. Right. Um, that's what Hinduism is referring to or trying to refer to quite badly. Um, and if you have gotten to know a Vaishnava, you'll know that there one person's Sita Rama is a bit different to another person's Radha Krishna. Yeah. Which is a bit different to another person's Lakshmi Narsimham. Yeah. You know? So um, getting them to realize that there is a vast depth, it tends to do one of two things. Either it becomes something that's enthralling and they get into it there and then. Right. Or it becomes something that is really, really too big for them to get into now. Yeah. But because they, they know it's there, yeah. I do hear back from them once they've graduated and students pick up their threads and they go and build a lovely fabric for themselves. So that's all that one can hope for. People are doing that. That's why you should be hopeful. Um, there are a lot of people who are there with scissors, scissors to cut those threads, however. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it, one need not mention who they are, but we should not be naive is another part of the story. Yeah, there is the goodwill of our people yeah. um, and people who have similar mindsets to us yeah. versus the really deep pocketed 
well politically supported um, movements of people who really can't countenance people who have different worldviews to them. Right, right. And, and this is, I mean, I mean, obviously I have some sense of hope because this is why I would do a podcast like this anyway, right. is I want people to learn more. And I assume that there's people out there that, that care about these traditions. Um, and, and, but at the same point, you know, like it's important for me to have conversations with you and other people hmm. to talk about the social evils that are part and parcel of, of the, of our great isms of Hinduism or Dharma right. or whatever right. it is. Right. Cause right. we, cause there is, I mean, there is no necessarily right answer to everything. There's no, no. there's no, um, I mean, Dharma is subtle, right? So it's, it's, we have to yeah. figure that out. But the only way we figure that out is we talk, we engage right. with each other. And I am hopeful that at least if not amongst our own, our own ethnic people, that Hinduism is becoming a little more or very sympathized and becoming more open to other groups of people, you know, oh, other yeah. ethnic groups and other, other people that are interested oh, yeah. in, in getting a different spirituality. Um, and, 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 and it's important, you know, at the end of the day, like with the work you're doing is, is amazing. It's fascinating. I mean, I don't know to me too many people that have the time, not, not the time, you don't have time, but have the, the desire, the drive and the passion to, to work with, you know, uh, college students or uh, young adults in, in trying to try to guide them through some of these difficult times. Cause this is, it's a very unique thing, I think, to the, in, to the Dharmic way of approaching things. We're not mm. used to this Western institution of college and, and, mm. and this chaplaincy, right? It's not, that's mm. not how it works really. Right. Usually you go to a, a guru or acharya to learn a mantra or to, to do something related to practice not right. so much about identity, not so much about these things, right. which you, which you get, which you're providing. So, you know, thank you for that service you're doing. It's oh, amazing. Thank you. Um, I mean, all I would say is that if through your podcast, people are discussing these kinds of things, I mean, I have even more hope than I had beforehand in that case. Um, well, I don't have a huge following. I have maybe like 500, maybe max. I'm trying to build it, but I want more people to, to care about these things because I think the intellectual tradition, like, you're talking about Tindimbarka is is a world intellectual tradition. You can sit up there with anyone like Spinoza or Kant, and you should be able to have conversations with with people that have those perspectives because it's a philosophy. It's not just a philosophy. Yes, um, and I mean the reason why America gave me hope in in some cases when I went there. Yeah. Um, in Edinburgh, when I was uh, doing my PhD, we established the Edinburgh Hindu Temple, mm -hmm. um, a temple that was mostly Punjabi people. Yeah. Um, uh, but because of, oh, I'm this place in India, I'm from that place in India, the other place in India, yeah. there were some really tight dynamics between people, really fricti uh, frictive dynamics between yeah. people. And um, when they opened and they were wondering about which deities that they should install, yeah. I said, we stick with the deities of the Shastra, but try and find a, a, a version of those deities that speak to broader people than just yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so... Now you go there, you'll have the Kannada community celebrating something, you'll have the Oriya community celebrating something, you'll have the Sri Lankan Tamil community celebrating something, you'll yeah. have the Nepalese community, you know, it's a cross. Yeah. And then when I came over to, um, to DC and you see the Sri Shiva Vishnu temple um, in Maryland, yeah. and the fact that they've done the thing that I've wanted all temples to do, I've been right. advised about 90 or so temples um, in the world, yeah. Only a few able, are able to take this up because, you know, finances are tight for everybody. Sure. But turning the temple into what it used to be, 
which was a nexus of all culture, uh, community, social activity, yeah. social development, community development. Um, why shouldn't you be able to go as a Hindu to your temple and expect that the temple authorities would have figured out, okay, here are some professionals that we can link you guys together with. Right. So that you can benefit as people. Is that working um, right now? Do you find that that's happening? It's working like a, a charm in, in the Shiva Vishnu temple. They yeah. even established something called, you know, um, the Center for Dharma Education. Wow. And they've, they've held uh, town halls on various things such as mental health, uh, such as domestic abuse, such as LGBTQIA issues, um, and how you provide spaces for them and help people from our communities who belong to these kinds of um, identities too. So things are changing. Wow, that'd be great to, to have that most, out there more. Oh yeah, one of the most, you know, on apparition's sake, you've got 12 Brahmins who have... Um, you know, passed the biggest exams in India before they were exam, uh, uh, you know, invited to become uh, pundits there. Yeah. And even these very, 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 you know, who people would look at them and say, oh, they must be so orthodox. They, might, they probably won't even drink the water we offer them. Yeah. Um, that kind of nonsense doesn't exist there. Wow. So I'm glad that there are beacons of light such as SSVT, such as the Hindu temple. There are other temples across the land. Sure. Um, that are really challenging people's outdated Victorian notions about what it means to be Hindu. Right, right. Because I, mean, I imagine a lot of these traditions existed well before the British came anyway. Uh, like you said, there's the, the tradition of writing versus what the people did on the ground, right? Uh, yeah. So that's the thing to, to keep in mind. It's hit the hour. I know you have uh, a lot to do. Thank you so much for your time. It's just, uh, it was fantastic. You know, hopefully this was a good experience for you. And uh, we just had, I look forward to hopefully some point meeting you in person once all this COVID craziness uh, goes away and then sure. you're back in the States. Uh, sure. But do you have anything else that you want to touch upon or uh, to, um, to plug? I would basically just say that um, always think of how to support uh, people's deep dives into Dharma and its uh, ways of thinking. Um, and also think about how to create that kind of community in America. We can't go along anymore with our eyes blinkered uh, yeah. because there are a lot more people who have realized uh, what is possible if they get hold of us. So um, let's try and be aware, uh, focus on our community building, see how it goes through our children's development, not just take them to school, you know, while they're at school. Yeah. But think about now when at, while they're at university, at this most formative time when they're away from parents, away from families, away from, uh, from the community that they're used to. Yeah. Is there a way that they can be encouraging of, of, of inquisitiveness yeah. in a dharmic way at yeah. these places as well? Um, and if so, uh, they should definitely get in touch with, you know, there's the North American Hindu Chaplains Association that was founded recently. Um, there are organizations that are doing really good work, but stay away from, stay away from that conflation of the need for dharma and um, allegiances to one's various motherlands. Mm -hmm. Yes. Those are two separate discussions. I to agree. conflate both of them would lead to the destruction of all of them. Yes, yes. Um, uh, uh, Brahmachari, um, where can people reach you if they want to, uh, if they do, yeah, if they do want to contact or get in touch, just find out a little bit more, uh, dharmiclife.georgetown.edu, okay, um, is a good place to start. Um, 
we're actually going to be opening a dharmic center on uh, on Georgetown's campus. Excellent. Uh, so um, we're 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 quite excited with that. Um, again, all student all student initiatives. I had nothing to do with that. Is that going to be Hindu, Buddhist, Jain? Um, Correct. Or? We'll have a we'll have a Jinalaya, we'll have a Bodhalaya, and we'll also have a Shiva uh, uh, sh shrine for Shaivas, Vaishnavas, and Shaktas as well. And and is is our Sikhism also included there, or are they? Because Sikhism doesn't uh, do shrines. Yeah, yeah. Say, um, yeah. We will have uh, we will have a photographic, a, a nice painting representation of the uh, the the ten gurus. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Well, Brahmachari, cool. thank you so much for your time and you know, just helping us, helping me learn more about Nimbarka and yourself. And, you know, um, again, uh, thank you. And uh, Jai Radha Krishna. Jai Radha Krishna. Namaskaram. Thank you so much. For your <laughs>